Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. And today we are going to get into Acts chapter 2 with a brand new series simply called Power. That's really the theme of Acts chapter 2. It's really the theme of Acts in general is power. Um, So as we've already seen in Acts 1 over the last several weeks, um, it's sort of setting the stage for what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. It kind of lays the groundwork and it sets the stage for the rest of the book, for the beginning of the movement that is called the church. And what we're going to see here as we journey through Acts 2 for a few weeks um, is how things really got going. And as we'll see today and throughout the next few weeks, Things got started with a bang. If you've never read Acts 2 or studied it, you are in for a treat. And I will just say this. If you have read Acts 2 or you've heard stuff about Acts 2 or you've seen things around Acts 2, you might be a little bit frightened at the moment. If you sort of kind of think you know what's coming, you may or may not know what's coming. But Acts 2 is one of those things where when we, we'll look at it briefly today and then in more detail in a few weeks. Some of the things that we're going to read about today are going to seem strange. They're going to sound very odd. They're going to be very different from anything else that you may have ever read or heard about in the Bible. And so my prayer is is that we sort of take our time working through a very unique story in a unique book of the Bible that we can come out of it with a better understanding of what's really going on here and what this power really is. So our goal in Acts is to see how the church started then and really to discover what God may want to do in and through the church now including specifically this church that we are a part of, what God may want to do that may look something like this, but maybe something a little bit different. So we're talking about power as we enter Acts chapter 2. And today, as we kick off this series, we're going to look at this idea of the promise of power, the promise of power. And to get to the promise, we're going to do some CPR today, okay? So what we're going to look at are three things about, the, about power today. We're going to look at the circumstance surrounding this event in Acts 2, the C. We're going to look at the promise leading up to this moment, that's the P. And then the R, we'll look at the results of Acts chapter 2. So the circumstance we'll read about, the promise leading up to it, and then the results of the promise of power, CPR. So as we look at the promise of power, let's first look at the actual event. The circumstance, let's explore Acts chapter 2 and look at this initial powerful event that took place in Acts chapter 2. So let's start with the first verse and then we'll look at it here for just a minute. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now, when you read that word Pentecost, you may have an idea in your head about what that word means to you. 
whether for good or for bad, whether positive or negative, whether freaky deaky or I'm okay with that, okay? There's a whole spectrum of ideas just based on that one word and what we think about or what we've experienced from that word. But really what this is, all, the, all this word Pentecost is, is it's a Jewish festival. It's a feast that these Jewish people would have come to. It's one of the bigger ones because as we'll see in a few moments, there are not just Jews from Jerusalem, not just Jews from Israel here in Jerusalem at this, at this feast. There are Jews from all over who have come in to celebrate this major feast. It, this feast is also sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And it's celebrated because the law commands it to be celebrated. So Exodus 34, 22 gives this command. It says, you must celebrate the festival of harvest with the first crop of the wheat harvest. So that's what Pentecost is. And celebrate the festival of the final harvest at the end of the harvest season. So there are, are two feasts mentioned here in Exodus 34. Pentecost is the first one. So it's sort of almost like you think of Memorial Day, the, be the unofficial beginning of summer. Okay, so this feast is the beginning of the harvest season. So it's going to be celebrated usually at the end of May. When the first wheat crops come in, they have the celebration that lasts about a week long. And Jews, again, from all over come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And then the second one it talks about happens in September, early October to celebrate the end of the harvest. But this one celebrates the beginning, the beginning of the new harvest season. There's a second aspect to this as well, and that uh, this Feast of Pentecost also celebrates the law being given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So both of these events here, that's really what they also celebrate. Because what the law in the Old Testament did for these people is it gave them really their first ever identity. So initially, the, the nation of Israel, when you go to the very beginning, is sort of just a large family thing. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that's where it starts. But then the promise, though, to Abraham from God was, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. And so after enough years, decades pass, now they've grown large, but they find themselves in Exodus 1 in slavery. So yeah, they've grown and they've multiplied and God seems like he's doing what he promised, but now they find themselves slaves in a foreign land under a, a dictator who thinks he's a god, the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so only when they escape Egyptian bondage, then at the foot of this mountain, God gives his law to them to really tell them, hey, now you're free. Now you maybe don't know what to do. And so I'm going to give you this law to help you know how to function with one another, to help you how to know how to actually worship me different than everybody else worships every other God. We're going to lay it out here to help you know how to structure, how to structure this new way of life as a new nation. So Pentecost, in, in both the harvest and in the giving of the law, celebrated the beginning of their nation. But what we see here in Acts, that we'll read the, a little bit more in just a second, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost then doesn't just celebrate the beginning of a nation, but this event, this circumstance, then initiates the beginning of a movement, that is the church. So let's look more about what happens on this day when they're gathered. Jesus' followers here are gathered together in Acts 2, back to verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And there, Jesus says to wait, pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Verse 2, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. 
And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This is the circumstance that really catapults, kickstarts this movement called the church. And so this is the circumstance that was promised. So let's, we'll spend most of our time on the second part, the promise of this event. So they've just experienced something like they've never experienced before. The sound of like a tornadic windstorm filling this room where they're praying. Literal fire that they can see over each of them. Then they began to speak in languages that they have never learned. They did not know that they knew because they don't know it. And the people that are outside around them, not in the prayer meeting that they're in, can understand it's their language. We'll get to more of that a little bit more later on, but we'll spend an entire week talking about that topic and what that is. And so get ready for that one. I'll give you, I'm going to give you a, head, a, a warning ahead of time. We're going to go there and talk about more of that. But let's look at the promise of this event that they've just experienced. So anytime there's a promise, anytime that you're given a promise, there are kind of two connected parts of that when you receive a promise. Um, first, it's always futuristic. A promise is all what you don't know when it's going to happen. You just know it hasn't happened yet. So it has yet to happen. It is a promise that you're waiting on in the future. And the second part that's connected is not only is it futuristic, but there's faith involved in believing a promise. Because you want to believe the person is going to deliver on the promise that they made. You have to weigh the options. Okay, are they going to come through on this or are they going to flake out on me? Are they just pulling my leg or are they actually going to make this thing happen? Are they just leading me on to use me or are they actually going to uh, deliver on their promise? So it's futuristic and it requires faith. Jesus makes a promise about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not just makes a promise, but over and over and over again promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the longest public sermon or teaching from Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But the longest private conversation or teaching that he has with just his inner 12 disciples happens in the book of John, John 13 through 17. It's a really fascinating passage. Maybe one day we'll spend a few months working through that, but we're going to get through Acts first, okay? So in John 13 through 17, it's really in, this, in the upper room where they're having the Last Supper together. He takes this opportunity to teach them and get them ready for there's going to be changes that are coming. Things have been a certain way for the last three years. You've only known a certain way. You've only lived a certain way for this period of time. But pretty soon, things are going to change drastically in more ways than you might even understand. And so he talks, you know, we know that later on that night, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. Then he's going to be crucified. He's going to die the next day. He's going to be buried, then rise from the dead. And then he's going to ascend into heaven where he's really gone forever from their presence. He's getting them ready for this. And so he makes a promise to them that it's okay that he does this. And here's, here's, we'll look at a couple, but here's the first one. John 14, verses 16 and 17. John makes the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. That key word that I have underlined that he used to describe the Holy Spirit here is this word, advocate. 
So an, an advocate really is someone who represents someone else that can't represent themselves. So almost like if, if a child has to go in some sort of a hearing or a court case, they're going to have an advocate that's going to represent them. Or really an attorney is your legal advocate. They're going to represent you because you haven't learned the law and you don't want to make a mistake. And so you want them to help you out. So that's what an advocate does. A few other synonyms that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in this way are comforter, encourager, counselor, all these sort of describe what the Holy Spirit is designed to do and what he does when he comes. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is this word paraclete, or it's a, it's a version of that Greek word. And the imagery of that is similar to what we think of as an advocate, but really the imagery that this word makes us think of is someone to come alongside you, to walk beside you in life, to help you live life. So what, the, what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit wants to be for you is basically your 24-7 life coach or your 24-7 life personal trainer to never leave you, to always go with you. And that's the distinction because Jesus, because he's God in human form, right? He's God in flesh. He has that physical limitation. He can't be with his disciples everywhere all at once. And he knows if I'm going to send them out and scatter them all over the world, I can't personally go with all of them and be with them all the time. But the Holy Spirit is the one that can go with them everywhere all the time. And so that's why he goes on in John 16 to say this. He says, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But here's, catch this. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Again, Jesus knows I have physical limitations. At, I'm in a human body, okay? So, Peter, when you're in Jerusalem, I could be with you. I could live with you 24-7. But, John, if you go to Ephesus, I can't go with him and stay with Peter at the same time. If I'm going to be with Paul and travel all over the region, I can't be with him and John and Peter. I just can't do that. So that's why he says... It's best for you that I go away. And initially, that seems like a mystery to them. No, 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 no. We don't want you to go. It's not better if you go away. It's better if you stay. And he says, no, it's best for you that I go because then I can send the Holy Spirit who will go with you everywhere you go. Nonstop to be your paraclete, the one to come alongside you, to be with you, to help you live life and do what I've called you to do. The promise of power is for their ultimate good, and we have the same promise of the same power for our ultimate good. Then Jesus reaffirms his promise one more time at the very end. So after his crucifixion and resurrection, he's with his followers again for about 40 days. And then, as we've already talked about in Acts 1, he ascends into heaven and he's kind of gone from them. He's still not back yet. He'll come back sometime, but he's not back yet. And so right before he leaves, he reminds them of his promise. And we see this, so Luke, as we mentioned at the very beginning of our study, he wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts that we're studying. He wrote volume one and volume two. He puts this promise from Jesus both at the very end of volume one, Luke, and at the beginning of volume two, Acts. So let's look at these very quickly here about the promise of power. Luke 24, 49 some of the final words of Jesus in the book of Luke. He says, And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. 
And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, probably maybe the same sort of event here or just right after, he's reaffirming the last words Jesus ever speaks before he ascends into heaven, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. At the very last moment, Jesus reaffirms his promise to them. I will send the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. He reaffirms to them at the very end this promise. And then in Acts 2, 1 through 4, it happens. Jesus fulfills his promise. It came to pass. Now, it came in maybe a way they weren't expecting. It came in a way that nobody around them knew what to do with at first. But Peter, of all people again, makes a connection. So he knows, yeah, okay, this is what Jesus just said a few weeks ago, yes, but he also makes a connection to even way before that. So Peter gets up, and we're going to read a couple sections here uh, of his first ever recorded sermon. Right after this event happens in Acts 2, 1 through 4, there's sort of a commotion. We'll read about it here in just a second. People are like, what's going on? What's happening? This is weird. This is strange. And Peter gets up and tries to explain what happens. But he doesn't say, yeah, Jesus promised this. This is a promise from him. He actually goes way further back than that. He goes to the Old Testament prophet Joel and says hundreds of years before us, Joel said this would happen. So let's look at a little bit longer part here of uh, Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. We're going to start at verse 12. And this is uh, sort of the first two verses here are the initial reaction of the crowd that are around them. And uh, see if you can maybe relate a little bit to their reaction. So the crowd outside, it says, Acts 2.12, They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. Okay, so that's their response to what happened in Acts 2.1-4. So then, here's what happens. Then Peter stepped forward with the other 11 apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that, right? He says, No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the exact dates of the prophet Joel are not clear, but it's somewhere between 500 and 900 B.C. So somewhere 500 and 900 years before this event happens, Peter remembers that prophecy the holy spirit i think brought it to his memory and what he says is something i wish i could say it's something amazing he says this is that he's saying what the 120 or so of us in this room just experienced is what joel said was going to happen this is that the people outside whether you get it or not whether you believe it or not this is that 
It's not just a thing that happened out of nowhere for no reason. Joel saw it coming. Jesus said it was going to come, and now it's come. How cool is that, that Peter can say, we've just lived through prophecy. It has just now been fulfilled. We've watched it. We've witnessed it. We've experienced it. I think that's, that's pretty cool. So let's break down, just for a minute here, some of the, the big parts of this quote from Joel 2. He talks about physical signs. Now, this is the weird part near the end. Uh, blood, fire, smoke, the sun darkened, the moon turned like blood. Some of this imagery has already happened. So at the crucifixion of Jesus, when he breathed his last breath, it's three in the afternoon. And yet, as soon as he dies on the cross, it looks like nighttime. The sun is gone. So it says the sun is darkened. So that one we can check off the box. And not only is the sun darkened, but there's an earthquake that like, breaks the foundation of the city that they are in. So that's another sort of sign that Joel may be pointing to here. Some of the imagery that we see described here maybe hasn't happened quite yet. We see uh, that in Revelation, some of these, you know, the moon turned to blood and fire and all that stuff. And some of that is almost Old Testament imagery of God's... Uh, coming on the mountain, Mount Sinai to deliver uh, the, the law. So it's almost hearkening back to that, to when Jesus returns, there'll be similar types of signs that will let us know he's coming. And it's not necessarily going to be great because he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from some of those signs that are coming. So those are some of the physical signs he talks about. He says, the, the Spirit says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. What they just experienced is the beginning of that the early stages of that. And as we'll see in Acts, that only continues and continues and continues and grows and multiplies and accelerates. Even today, again, I'll say this again a few more times, the same Holy Spirit is still active today. Same Holy Spirit, same power, still at work today. So it's all flesh, that includes us, includes you and includes me. He says, talks about dreams and visions. Uh, they'll have, these people have dreams and visions. We see that we'll talk about some of these in Acts. So Peter has a, a vision of unclean animals that God says it's okay to kill and eat them. Really, this vision that Peter has lets him know, hey, this message about Jesus is for everyone. It's not exclusively a Jewish religion anymore. It's for all flesh. And then in, in to coincide with that, a, a non-Jew named Cornelius has a vision of a man, a Jew named Peter, who he says, you need to connect with him, and he, you need to learn about Jesus. And so then these two visions co co collide, really, in essence, and they meet one another, and Cornelius, this non-Jew, comes to faith in Christ from this ultra-mega-Jew named Peter. These visions are what was predicted and prophesied that Peter talks about. A similar thing too, Paul later on, he is saved because he has a vision of the resurrected Jesus. He literally sees a vision of Jesus in the middle of the road one day, and it changes his life. And also, at the same time, another man named Ananias also has a vision of a man named Paul or Saul. And Saul has got quite a reputation for not being nice to Christians, okay? And Ananias is one of those Christians. And in this vision, God shows him, Saul's going to come to visit you. You need to accept him as your brother. Accept him as one of your own. Now, that's a risk. We'll get there at some point when we talk about this vision. That's a risk that he's taking. Is this a setup? Is this a false? Uh, is this like a vision from Satan? Like, or, you know, what's going on? Am I messing with my mind here? What, what's going on? But he accepts Paul. These two visions then work together. And then really the grandest vision of them all is John has a revelation 
of Jesus that he writes down, and that's how the Bible ends, is with this grand vision of the last days, of Jesus, of heaven, of the throne. And so these uh, dreams and visions are all throughout the book of Acts, as we'll see. And then he talks about prophecy, which is also all the way through the New Testament, all the way through Acts. Paul's letters, he uh, describes prophecy uh, a bit here. But all that to say that the promise came through. Jesus delivered on his promise. The Holy Spirit delivered on his promise to come in power, to give his followers power. And that's what kickstarted the movement that is the church. So we've seen the circumstance of Acts 2. We've looked at the promise that was given leading up to Acts 2. Now let's look at the result the result of the promise of power. So we see the obvious physical signs, results in a way, the wind, the rushing wind, the fire, the uh, tongues and other languages, which we will spend a couple weeks looking at those signs here in a few weeks. We'll look at the wind and fire. We'll look at the, the tongues and the languages in a different week as well to talk about those in more detail. But that's, that's the first sort of sign that something different is going on here, Okay. But then when the crowd gathers and Peter preaches, then after his sermon, there's another sign that I think is really what the whole point is, the result uh, of this power. So let's look more at the rest of Peter's sermon, Acts 2. We'll pick it up at Acts 2, verse 22, right where we left off. Verse 22, Peter again here speaking says, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. That's why we celebrate Easter, right? Skip down to verse uh, number 36, Acts 2, 36, the end of his sermon. Peter says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. So that's my biblical evidence that I can go long if I want to, okay? Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Here's the result. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So there are signs that, that show the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of power, but the real result is at the end here, that the power changed people's lives. The power of the Holy Spirit convicted people of their sin. The power of the Holy Spirit drew people to Jesus. And it says about 3,000 came to faith that day. This is Peter's first ever sermon. So as someone who preaches regularly, there's a part of me that's a little bit jealous of Peter here, right? 
First sermon, 3,000 respond, right? Seriously? Like, I remember my, my first, one of my first sermons, I was probably in middle school. It was for a competition sort of thing for uh, students in middle school and high school. It was a five-minute timeline. I preached on the story of where, uh, you know, Saul sacrificed the animals before Samuel came and God rejected him as king. It was a great way to start. It's fire and brimstone sermon from my first time when I was like 12, you know. Uh, and obviously, no one responded to that, you know, so it's like, seriously, Peter, come on, you know. But his first sermon was powerful. But here's why I make it, I joke about it, but here's why I make that comparison. is because it wasn't, the results that we see are not Peter's results, are they? They're the Holy Spirit's results. It's the result of the Holy Spirit. Now, he used Peter to preach this message, to explain what just happened, and to point people to Jesus through that. But the results are the Holy Spirit's results. And he starts, at the, that's, I think, part of the reason why he has these signs at the beginning. The, so Peter can't manufacture the wind, and he can't manufacture the fire. He can't manufacture the people speaking in these languages. It had to be the Holy Spirit doing these things for the purpose of getting people's attention. The Holy Spirit did that. And then Peter comes in on the end, used by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak these words. It's all about the power of the Holy Spirit. These results are an effect of that. And uh, Paul, in his writing, especially in 1 Corinthians, he makes this very clear, even about his own ministry, that really, I would say, probably has even more impact than Peter's in the end. But in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 4, he, he explains in his letter, he says, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now, the Holy Spirit does use preaching, right? If he didn't, I'm just going to waste my life doing what I, doesn't make any difference. So it does make a difference, but anything that I say that has any impact on anyone, it doesn't mean that those are my results right? The, the things that I, that I say, I'm trying to say, to see what God wants us to hear, what God wants me to say. And that may sound, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, oh, I'm speaking on behalf of God, but kind of in a way, that's what I'm doing, right? I'm trying to be sensitive to what God wants to say, what God wants to do in and through this, this body. And so it, the results are, have nothing to do with me. In fact, I would argue the opposite is true. I would argue, in fact, that the result, any results that, that we get in this church or from this church are in spite of me. They're in spite of you. It's because the Holy Spirit is doing something else in you and through you that you can't do on your own. He's empowering you for that purpose. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks, that convicts, that encourages, that reminds, that empowers, that saves. And I know this to be true because of my own experience. I shared this story with our small group leaders a few weeks ago, but I'll share it with you to illustrate this idea that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that, that saves people. So this coming April will be 30 years since I became a Christian. So at our small church, which was, the building's just a tad bit bigger than this one, but not much. It's very eerie how similar this looks to the church I grew up in for my whole life, right? It's scary. Um, it is. So we had this evangelist come. I was, uh, it was April of 93, um, so I was almost seven years old. We had this evangelist come, and he was going to do a week-long revival. So he came Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. And I'm at every one of those, right? I'm six years old, and I'm there at all of them. We're talking like two or three-hour marathons every night. 
And so that's just how, that's how it was. And God did some really amazing things. The Holy Spirit did some really amazing things. And so uh, the pastor asked the evangelist to come back for another week, second week. So we had Saturday night off, guys. We got a break. And then we're back at it again. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, second week. Holy Spirit's doing some really cool things that second week. He has, a, he has more time off, so he comes for a third week. Same thing. During that third week, he gets a few of the people in our church to kind of come together and do like a little passion play near the end of his message that week. I don't know what night of the week it was, but it was near the, well, I know it wasn't Friday because I went to school the next day, so it was Wednesday or Thursday of that third week. So we have a, a man come through, and I knew him because I went to church with him. He comes through the back, but he's Jesus. He's carrying the cross. He carries the cross up the aisle. He comes to the back, and they hang him on this cross. They crucify him, and he's hanging there. There's like these red lights on him, you know, and all that stuff. And me, as a near seven-year-old, I looked at that, and something inside of me said, I, that's for me. I need that. So the evangelist had been there for almost three weeks, and I heard him, and you know, I didn't fall asleep every night. You know, some nights I was under the pew asleep. You know, I'm six. Give me a break, guys. But something in that moment told me, quickened me, that's for you. You need, you need that. And so after that part was over, he came back up. He invited everyone to come up to the, the front area. And so my dad's in the sound booth. So I was there with my mom and my aunt standing there. They're kind of behind me on either side. And I still have that feeling, that, that's for me, that's for me, that's for me. And so I kind of lean over to my mom and I say, I think I need to be saved. And so she prays with me to, I looked at you, that's not a good idea. So she prayed with me in that moment, and my life has never been the same. Yeah. And it's the same thing in Acts 2. It wasn't clever preaching that did it. It wasn't even really the, the passion play that did it. That was a vessel, a tool that the Holy Spirit used, but it was him directly speaking to me, saying, that's for you. You need that. And that's what changed the course of the rest of my life. I can point to the mile markers. Ten years later, I felt a call to ministry. And so then a couple years after that, I end up in Springfield, Missouri, where I meet this woman, and then God calls us to do ministry together, and then we have our kids, and then now we're here doing this. Everything in my life goes back to that moment because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the power is all about. That's what the result is. The circumstance may look different in your life or what, you, what others in your life, it's going to look different for them. But the promise is the same. Peter says it's for you, your children, and for everyone who is far off. And the results may look a little bit different, but the end result's the same. The Holy Spirit changes things. The Holy Spirit changes lives. That's the power that we're talking about. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's good, Jesus says, that I go away because I can send the Holy Spirit to speak to each and every one of you in different ways, at different times, and he'll always be with you. That's the power that we're looking at today and we'll continue to look at. It's the power that changes everything. And so at, my prayer is, as, as we tap more and more and more into that power that our lives will be transformed so maybe you're here and you're not a christian the holy spirit i'm thinking even right now is speaking to you saying what are you waiting for you need that you need that man on a cross who guess what didn't stay dead peter said it in a sermon he rose from death he defeated death he's victorious over death and sin 
and he can change your life. If you are a Christian, he continually wants to change you and transform you. The Bible says from glory to glory. We're changed to conform more to the image of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because I'm doing good deeds, not because I'm earning my salvation, uh, not because, you know, God accepts me now that I've gotten in line. No, it's because the power of the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives, continues to grow and mature us to look more like our Savior, Jesus. That's the power that I think as we tap into, we can experience more and more and more is the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this circumstance that we looked at today. And although some of the things around it may seem odd to us, may sound different than anything we've ever heard before, may bring up negative memories of things that we've experienced that we weren't sure about or that maybe were wrong in some way, help us as we talk about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, not only this series, but all throughout Acts, to not be afraid, to not be turned off to the Holy Spirit, but to be open and receptive to the Holy Spirit, to his power, to his prompting, to his leading in our lives. May this be the circumstance in our lives. And we accept this because it was promised by Jesus. He's not going to lead us astray. He's not going to promise us a bad deal. We already know he came through. The Holy Spirit came 2,000 years ago, and the Holy Spirit is still here doing the same thing. So we, we are open to the Holy Spirit because we trust Jesus. And we know that these results are real that we've talked about. We know from, if we're followers of Jesus, from our own experience that the Holy Spirit did the same thing for us that he did for 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. So we help us to be ready for the Holy Spirit. Help us to be open and receptive to whatever he might want to do in us and through us so that we can, through our own experience, our own lives, see these powerful results. Thank you for the work that you are doing and the work that you are going to do as we just walk daily, step in step with your spirit. Amen.